You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovegal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is the province of BC posts a higher-than-expected surplus, plus where the continuing public and private policy disagreements between Alberta and the federal government leave the rest of us. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wonderful to be here. Good morning. Now, after a range of preliminary estimates, British Columbia has posted a surplus for the fiscal year ending this past March. Please unpack that for us. It's clear that the last couple of years have been a very challenging one in terms of our fiscal situation. Uh, unprecedented costs were borne by governments around the world, particularly in Canada, in an attempt to keep people afloat, keep businesses going, uh, with lockdowns and other public health measures that took place. Uh, so, of course, that had a particular pressure uh, that was placed on our fiscal situation. Uh, Governments went into a lot of debt uh, to deliver support and services, uh, things like the uh, emergency wage support that the federal government provided to workers, uh, business subsidies, and everything across the board. Uh, So it's a good place to be in now that there has been very robust bounce back economically. Uh, Immigration is up. Our population is growing at a rapid rate. That's obviously having a positive impact as well on our economy. And uh, where that leaves us is a somewhat unexpected surplus of more than $700 million in the fiscal year that just ended this spring, the 2022-2023 budget year. Uh, Overall, across the province, we're seeing 3.6% economic growth in that period, uh, which, again, is a very good signal. Um, They say that this higher economic growth, healthy employment levels, uh, led to higher-than-expected revenue from income taxes and natural resource royalties. Um, and one of the consequences of that, a positive one, of course, is the operating debt uh, for British Columbia has been eliminated once again. I think the last time we saw that was towards the end of the uh, BC Liberal government, uh, which ended in 2017. Um, but what does this really highlight for me is that natural resources have been and continue to be a foundation for our economic prosperity, both as a province and as a country. We get to really rely on these sources of wealth and large industries, large employers built up around it, many, many businesses of different sizes across the supply chain in many communities, large and small, uh, to provide a very essential, necessary boost, uh, particularly when global conditions are good and the kinds of products that we are able to produce, like oil and gas, particularly natural gas in British Columbia, minerals and metals and forestry products are in high demand around the world. Um, we're also really looking at major emerging industries like liquefied natural gas exports from the coast of British Columbia as a part of our future going forward. Uh, once we get uh, our largest private sector investment project in Canadian history, LNG Canada, fully operational in the next couple of years, uh, that's going to be its own source of ongoing contribution to the British Columbia economy and a really, really major driver of the kinds of things that governments like to see, which is dollars flowing into provincial coffers so that they can invest in things uh, like education, health care, roads, infrastructure, and all the other things that we rely on government for. Um, but, of course, it's an important reminder that uh, we need to ensure that revenues can actually keep up with that spending. So British Columbia is on a good trajectory. You know, kudos to the, the BC NDP and Premier Eby for getting us to this place. Uh, but lots of work ahead to make sure we can maintain that 
stable, reliable source of income going forward that we can very effectively reconcile the need we have for increased sustainability and action on climate change with ensuring that there is robust economic growth going forward. Um, so that's going to be an interesting one to watch. I'm excited to see what the 2023-2024 fiscal year brings. Uh, if I had to guess, uh, you know, more money coming in the door. Um, you know, we're having a boom in construction. Uh, labor market conditions are still quite tight. Um, so it's a good place to be in in a post-pandemic recovery. Uh, but, of course, challenging on the opposite side of it for uh, businesses that are looking for talent, um, even for housing prices. Uh, given all the competition that there is in a very, very tight, short uh, labor, uh, sorry, a housing market. So lots of stuff to watch there, but uh, positive news, generally speaking. And now looking ahead to the 2024 provincial election, what are you expecting to see at this point? Well, it's a really interesting point to be at. Um, you know, I've been in and around uh, political circles for effectively the last decade. I uh, got involved in 2014, um, federally, provincially, and um, have uh, stayed involved in various forms over the years. Um, and I've seen a very big shift uh, over the last few years provincially. Uh, it's not an unexpected one. Uh, nature of governments across the country and many places around the world as well is ultimately cyclical. So governments come in, uh, they you know, have a, a, a period of uh, gearing up. They typically come in uh, with a lot of momentum out of a general election uh, where very often they come to voters and say they're promising change. Um, that usually happens in response to dissatisfaction with how a government is doing. Um, so the, the the trend that we saw in the lead into 2017 was on the tail end of 16, 17 years that the B.C. Liberals were in government. Um, they had soundly defeated the, the B.C. NDP in 2001. Uh, in fact, they defeated them so much that the B.C. NDP only had two seats. Uh, but then, of course, the B.C. NDP came back in. Uh, they swept. Um, and the B.C. Liberal Party as a whole was fundamentally shattered. Um, and it's been, I would say, kind of a, a series of uh, you know fits and starts. Um, the rebrand to BC United uh, was a really pivotal moment. Uh, that was a leadership uh, campaign promise made by now leader Kevin Falcon. Uh, there were members in the base who were dissatisfied that the BC Liberal name was not a good one for a coalition party made up of federal liberals and federal conservatives. Um, so that promise was carried through in a popular vote uh, by the membership of the BC Liberal Party, and they made the switch. Um, but I think we're seeing some signs that uh, it may have not been the right one. Um, there was a by-election a couple of months ago uh, in a race that no one really expected um, you know, BC United to, to win. Uh, it's eventually considered to be a safe uh, BC NDP seat, um, but their placement in that race was a concerning one. They came in fourth, uh, which is not what you would typically expect for the opposition party, the lead opposition party to place in. Um, so that's a, an interesting trend to watch. Um, I'm hearing uh, indications that uh, earlier public polls that were released uh, a couple of months back that uh, had them uh, solid 10, 15 points behind the BC NDP uh, actually painted a rosier picture than the reality uh, that they could be polling even lower. Um, so for anyone who's invested in the success of that party, yeah, that, that's trouble. That's certainly a, a source of concern. Um, and overall, we do see this trend that uh, when a party gets into government, um, the human capital pool across the country of people who are involved in politics, who are prospective political staffers, organizers, activists, is not a very, very massive one. So um, the effect of a party coming to government like the BCNDP um, is they hoover up all the, the talent on their side of the spectrum. 
Um, and uh, when a party is in opposition, the opposite effect also occurs. Uh, they will, you know, lose people who are otherwise committed members, organizers, um, and operators uh, to parties across the country who are in government. Um, that can be at other levels as well, federal, uh, provincial, municipal, all kind of interchange sometimes. So it's going to be a real challenge in the lead into the 2024 election, uh, expected to be in October, might be a little bit earlier, I guess we'll see, um, for them to rebuild to a point where they're able to compete. Um, but more fundamentally, there is this dawning sense that the B.C. Conservative Party, which now has a new leader, John Rustad, is gearing up. They placed very well in that by-election. They seem to be pulling quite a bit of support from the right wing of the B.C. Liberals. Um, so it's a real question with... Uh, you know, votes being lost uh, to the BC NDP from the left of the party and votes being lost to the BC Conservatives on the right of the party, who really keeps the base of the party alive and how that's going to play out in the next year. So I'll be watching that one really closely and curious to see what opportunities the BC NDP spots on all of this, uh, because if they were smart, they would be finding all the ways they can create uh, wedges uh, in the current configuration and this sort of fracturing coalition effect that we're seeing uh, firsthand. And in other news, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith continues to go fisticuffs with the federal government. Where is that headed and what does it mean for the rest of us? Look, I think it's pretty clear to anyone who watches this file that um, while Premier Smith and uh, the Prime Minister seem to be able to work together, uh, you know, she's says positive things about working with Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Uh, it's apparent that her and Environment Minister Stephen Gobo don't really like each other all that much. <laughs> you know, we, we hear public remarks uh, and even gossip about uh, conversations held in private uh, where their disagreements are obviously very visible to anyone who's watching. Uh, in terms of public remarks, uh, just on a recent radio appearance in the last couple of days, uh, she said he needs to zip it on, uh, you know, what the energy sector in Alberta should be doing. Um, fundamentally, she's taking the view that uh, federal environmental and climate policy approach right now directly undermines Alberta's economic interest, uh, which a lot of which is uh, uh, based on its performance of oil and gas industries, which are a large, major contributor to Alberta's economy and the Canadian economy as a whole. Um, they've federally have made some very, very ambitious targets um, in terms of electrification and the electric grid uh, emissions uh, emissions. Uh, reduction targets that she thinks are quite unrealistic and effectively equate to a uh, production cap on industries that are energy intensive. Uh, she says that if all uh, proposed federal policies are fully implemented, uh, Alberta would see a 1.5 million barrels a day reduction in its production, uh, which is a very, very sizable number. Uh, ultimately, this is a constitutional matter. Uh, we do have uh, sort of a hodgepodge of jurisdictional uh, issues to, to work through where the federal government has dips over some matters. Uh, provinces do have in their domain what happens with natural resource products when pipelines uh, you know, cross interprovincial boundaries, uh, like you would if you're shipping from the coast of British Columbia any energy products. Uh, that does bring the federal government in. So there's a lot to work through there. Uh, the federal government uh, has said that it's developing a working group uh, to develop a clean economy in Alberta. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, but really the piece that I, I think she's leaning on and I think is an important one to note is that the energy sector has shown its capacity to decouple emissions from production growth. 
uh, if you look just at conventional natural gas and oil producers, uh, they actually lowered their uh, methane uh, emissions, uh, total emissions, by 34% in recent years. Uh, the emissions intensity has dropped by 46%, uh, and production has been growing. Uh, similarly, carbon dioxide em- emissions um, have dropped by 24%, but they've grown production by 21%. So that's a very positive trend, and I, I think I see what she means. 2050 is achievable, but potentially if we go a little bit harder, we might get to a point where uh, our ability to keep the foundational industry going is strained if we're not being pragmatic about the emissions uh, reductions that can be achieved while keeping it going. Finally, as summer winds to an end and families send their kids back to school, what's on the docket for your team at ResourceWorks? Well, I may have mentioned it before, but we are welcoming Canadian writer and public intellectual Zach Glass-Neal. Uh, he's a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba to our stage on Monday, September 25th. Uh, he'll be doing an evening dinner speaking event, uh, and uh, tickets are on sale now. They can be found on the ResourceWorks website. And uh, for listeners of Spice, I want to mention that there is a discount code, 5% off, if you put in SPICE5, all caps, one word, SPICE, number 5, uh, all caps, SPICE, and you'll get your 5% if you want to come to our dinner events. So hope to see some listeners there, and uh, it's going to be a really interesting chance to tap into Mr. Smeal's, Professor Smeal's, um extensive knowledge of, as his recent book was called, How the World Really Works in Terms of Energy and Commodity Economics and practical uh, applications to all the questions we discussed on this show with Karen. Awesome, Margaret. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. Thanks so much.